Our transition music is by H Beats, who can improve the quality of any presentation. That's H Beats with a Z at the end. See how H Beats can improve your presentation with a quality musical soundtrack. Contact H Beats three three zero at gmail dot com. Welcome to Conversations with Ken. I'm Ken Robinson. This is a podcast where we talk to interesting people about a lot of interesting topics. So glad you could. Call up our podcast to take a listen today. Hey, a lot of people are calling up our podcast now. You know, people are listening on a lot of different platforms. Number one is Apple Podcasts. Sixty-three percent of our listeners listen on Apple Podcasts. Ten percent listen on Anchor. Five percent listen on Spotify. Five percent get our podcast on Castbox. And the remaining sixteen percent of our listeners. Get the podcast through other means, but however you get it, we're so glad to have you on board. Please subscribe and tell your friends. I think they'll enjoy it. Well, today we're going to take a look at two health concerns. One is osteoporosis. It affects more people than you think. We'll get all the details. Also, we're going to talk to a courageous man who launched a one-man campaign. After getting a heart transplant, we'll hear his story right after this break. With our crazy economy, you've got to save money any way you can, and that includes your cell phone bill. Switch over to Mint Mobile and get talk, data, and text for as little as fifteen dollars a month. It's so easy. Pick the plan that's best for you, and Mint will send you a SIM card. Insert it into your phone and start saving. You can even keep your old number. Slash your cell phone bill today with Mint Mobile at krobcollection.com. Make Coinbase your home base for cryptocurrency trading. Coinbase supports a growing list of assets, including Bitcoin and Ethereum. You can count on Coinbase for safety. Crypto stored on their servers is covered by insurance. Coinbase will pay you to start trading. And to watch their instructional videos, so you can earn while you learn. Get all the details at krobcollection.com, and you'll discover that Coinbase is easy to use, trusted, and secure. Back now to conversations with Ken. I'm Ken Robinson. You know, a CPR instructor is continuing his one-man campaign to encourage people to become organ donors. Two years ago, Gene Shermandel received a heart transplant. At the Cleveland Clinic, in honor of the anniversary of his life-saving procedure, Shermandel just completed a walk from Washington D.C. to Cleveland, Ohio, to raise awareness about organ donations. And that's the second walk that he's made. After he received his new heart, he walked from Cleveland to Washington D.C. Gene Shermandel is a former Case Western Reserve University professor, and I caught up with him. Right outside the Cleveland Clinic, where he had his heart transplant, and was just off the road from his walk from Washington D.C. Well, let's start with your、uh, your heart transplant. What、uh, first of all, what necessitated the need for a, a heart transplant, and and when did you have it? I had an undiagnosed、uh, uh, strep infection that、uh, came on very suddenly. It was a Monday morning. I had awakened,、uh, not able to breathe. And I had、uh, checked into、uh, university hospitals, and、uh, they, I had worked with、uh, Case Western Reserve University. 
they said, I got good news and I got bad news. And uh, bad news is your heart function is horrible, but we can help you. And that was a 12-year journey to this moment. And uh, last, uh, it was May 8th, 2017, when I received a new heart. I'd gotten a call on May 6th from this wonderful folks at Cleveland Clinic saying, we think we found you a heart. And uh, I got down here, and over the course of uh, the 7th and the 8th, a new heart was implanted. And I woke up uh, two days later with somebody else's heart beating in my chest. Now, I understand you got the heart from a young accident victim, right? Yeah. Cody uh, Stubble was 20 years old. He was in a motor vehicle accident on May 3rd and lay in a coma until May 6th. And uh, he was a magnificent young man. I've gotten to meet all the family, uh, the Stubble family and the Bruchet family. Uh, I met them on Thanksgiving Day when 16 of them drove into Aurora to cheer me on on the Aurora Turkey Trot. I did a 5K race six months after my transplant. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it was really an act of love that they were able to donate the young man's heart, and it's beating within you now. Cody's uh, heart beats very well in me. I exercise, well, with this walk, I've been exercising for the last 40 days nonstop. But uh, prior to the last two years, I exercise five, six days a week, and it's magnificent. I, uh, for 12 years, my daughters used to have to help dad get up out of the chair to be able, so that I could get to the bathroom. And that has changed. My youngest daughter, when I was diagnosed with congestive heart failure, was only three years old. And she's never known a healthy dad. She's now 17. And now is getting to know a healthy dad. Now you are a professor at the Case Western Reserve University. I, I uh, taught at Case for uh, 19 years. I was the advanced cardiac life support uh, training training the uh, ACLS program for the third year medical students. It's just magnificent. That's very ironic. <laughs> yeah, needing a heart, uh, being told you needed a heart after being the guy that was in charge of saving lives for so long, I couldn't possibly believe that I was the guy that was going to be need in need of saving. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of getting a heart transplant? Well, when I was growing up, heart transplants were <laughs> experimental. It was like walking on the moon, but now they're pretty routine. It, yes. Yeah, the transplant, I had had two left ventricular assist devices that were implanted in my chest prior to getting the heart transplant. The uh, assist devices were, it looked kind of like a uh, Chrysler fuel pump that was attached to the base of my heart. And that gave me a quality of life that was remarkable. That uh, allowed me to be able to continue doing what I had been doing prior to the need for those devices. Um, I would be able to grocery shop, I'd be able to help around with chores around the house, whereas before the devices were implanted, I couldn't do that. Uh, with the second pump implanted, I had that uh, for a year and a month, and that's when I got the call for the heart. And within just a matter of uh, 48 hours, 
that new heart was implanted and I was in surgery waking up. Do you remember anything about the heart transplant operation itself, the procedure going in, you know, to the operating room and being there for so long? I remember being wheeled into the operating room and uh, there was another body in the room. And then the surgeon anesthesia fellow said, Gene, you're going to get really sleepy. (laughs) And I remember nothing after that. I was surprised that there was a, uh, another body in the room at that time. I figure that was probably Cody's body that they were taking the heart from at that moment. I don't know that to be true, but that seems like what was going on there. And it took two days to get his heart inside you. It was a 12 and a half hour surgery. So I awakened. It was about uh, 24 hours later. So I was... Uh, under the anesthesia and in a coma for a little while and then they brought me around and it was an interesting day. When you came out of anesthesia, how did you feel? I could feel with the LVADs, I didn't have a pulse. It was a continuously feeding pump and so there was no lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. As soon as I woke up, I felt a heartbeat going on in my chest, I could feel a bump, 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 bump that I didn't feel with the uh, artificial hearts. Were you in pain at all? I mean, coming out of anesthesia? Was... The pain was minimal. The, they had medications that allowed me to be pretty much pain-free. The times, because they had me up in a chair within 12 hours of me waking up, that was a bit uncomfortable. And having you know fellows lift me out of, uh, out of the bed and into the chair That was a bit uncomfortable, and there was a lot of tubing that was connected to me at that time, so that was a bit stressful and painful, but fortunately, you don't remember pain real well. I quickly forgot about those. How long did it take for you to get back to normal, pretty much a normal routine, probably feeling better than you had in years? Twelve days was the recovery time, and I was told that as soon as I learned my uh, anti-rejection medications, I could get home. So I did my best at being able to learn those uh, anti-rejection medications and the complications of them and how I was supposed to take them. So I learned them pretty quickly and was free to be able to start my cardiac rehab very shortly after that. Now, do you still have to take anti-rejection drugs? They tell me for the rest of my life. So we'll see. That's a small price to pay, though, right? Most certainly. It's an amazing story, and it dramatizes the need for organ donation, doesn't it? That it does. My uh, trek to Washington, D.C., and my trek back was all about... I waited for 12 years to get a heart. There are 22 people that die each and every day because there's not enough organs donated. I think that that's a shame because... It's the most precious thing that we offer, is the ability to save another human being's life. Superheroes is what uh, I call those people that have been, that are organ donors. I call Cody my hero. He saved my life. My son was married on Good Friday. I wouldn't have been able to see that take place had Cody not been an organ donor. The fact that you were able to walk from Cleveland to Washington, D.C., and from Washington, D.C., back to Cleveland. Two trips, two trips shows 
the miraculous nature of the heart transplant, that you are in better shape. I'm in perfect health, and I could not walk to Washington, D.C. It has been a challenge. There's no doubt about that. But it was something that I had to do. So I'm glad that this is over. (laughs) My wife says, you're not doing this again. (laughs) And I understand her completely. I uh, don't plan on having this walk again. I've shouted loudly uh, next year bicycle trek from the Cleveland Clinic to the Meadowlands for the Donate Life Games. So keep an eye out for that. Now what impact do you think your your walking back and forth between Cleveland and Washington has had an what impact has it had on organ donation and the awareness of the need for organ don- donations? When I got into Washington DC I did the Good Morning, uh, the Great Day Washington morning talk show. And afterwards, the producer asked me, he said, Gene, do you have some time? We have a young lady who's flying in from New York who has started uh, doing the uh, publication uh, Heart Threads. And it's a a web-based production. And she aired that. I was the second one that she'd done the interview for. And in four days, there were 400,000 views of her production of the man that walked from the Cleveland Clinic to Washington, D.C. But you met a lot of people along the way that you were able to convince you know, them of the importance of organ donation. I had uh, over 400 people that I had met along my journey that signed my Donate Life flag, and I presented that last year to Cody's mom and dad. And this year, I've done the same. I have over 500 signatures on it this year, and I'm going to present that to the Stubble family when I see them again. What would you like to say to our listening audience, those who said, well, I'll be an organ donator someday, I'll sign up someday, you know, I'll commit to it in the future. What do you say to those folks? I think uh, Walt Disney said it very well. Stop talking and start doing and I agree with Walt Disney. It can make all the difference in the world. You wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, for organ donation. I wouldn't be here if Cody hadn't uh, signed that, uh, that registration form when he got his driver's license. I'm a blessed man. So this, you never know who this is going to touch. It could touch a friend, a relative, anybody. It's interesting. When I arrived in Washington, D.C. last year, my phone stopped working, and I had a cell charger that had worked just fine. And I had a gentleman that I bumped into when I was stopping to recharge, and he asked me, how come we didn't have a uh, an opt-out organ donation system? And I asked him, what is an opt-out organ donation system? And he said, in Wales, where he was from, they were the first United Kingdom uh, country to start the opt-out. And he said, we assume that folks want to be in. And we, in the United States, need to register in. It increased organ donation in the United Kingdom by two-thirds. I think we need to do, to look at, something like that here in the United States. That would be a good place to start. I think so. I think... uh, Opt-out is a good place to be. Former Case Western Reserve University professor Gene Shamandel, who walked from Cleveland, Ohio, to Washington, D.C., and then from Washington, D.C. to Cleveland, Ohio, to tell everybody about his heart transplant and why it's so important that more people become organ donors. Well, up next, 
we're going to learn everything you ever wanted to know about osteoporosis right after this break. Osteoporosis is a disease that's familiar to many women, but a lot of people don't know a whole lot about it. So today we're going to talk to Dr. Holly Thacker. She's executive director for Speaking of Women's Health. It's a website that educates women about a wide variety of ailments. Dr. Thacker, uh, osteoporosis is often called brittle bone disease. Is it still looked at in that way? Osteoporosis is a major public health problem, and it affects one in two women over age 55, and it's more common than heart attacks, strokes, and breast cancer combined in women, and it definitely is a disease of fragile bones. It hasn't been in the uh, limelight. It hasn't gotten the media attention that it, it used to like uh, 20, 30 years ago, but, but it's a major uh, ailment that affects women these days. Yes, it is very common, very underdiagnosed, underrecognized, and unfortunately, it's not a sexy disease. But I like to tell my patients, it's hard to be sexy if your bones are dissolving. And so many people attribute their wrist fracture or their hip fracture or arm or spine compressions with height loss to just trauma or aging. But it is most situations, it is from osteoporosis which can be effectively treated, and we have some excellent options. Is osteoporosis usually detected when, when there is a fracture, when there is some trauma? Uh, is, is that when it's usually uh, detected uh, and not uh, before then? Well, it all depends on who the patient is seeing. Um, many people who break a bone go to the emergency room, and they may see their trusty emergency room physician and get a cast or an orthopedic surgeon who, you know, fixes the fracture. Uh, but unless a person sees a physician that's aware and interested in osteoporosis, many times they don't get an evaluation and treatment. And certainly all women by age 65 should get a bone density, which Medicare covers. And women uh, should definitely get a bone density test sooner than that, like around the time of menopause, particularly if they're at risk or they have a family history of someone breaking a hip, or they've been on steroids or prednisone, or they're very low in estrogen or had an early menopause and aren't taking any menopausal hormones. Um, so there are a lot of different things that can influence the risk of the bones becoming thin. The bone is living tissue like our skin, and it regenerates, and it's constantly building up and breaking down. But what happens when women lose estrogen and go into menopause, they start breaking down bone so much faster than they can build it up. And so it's all a matter of how long you live before you essentially run out of your bone tissue to support your skeleton, and then that's when fractures begin. Is it hereditary in, in, in any way, or is it more re related to lifestyle and environment? Well, it's both. Certainly the family history is very important. So the genetics of a person... Uh, do have influence on their bone metabolism and their vitamin D receptors. Also, what your lifestyle is early in life and early adulthood 
maximizes how much bone you have in the bank, so to speak. So most people reach peak bone density at around age 30 or 35. And some people genetically just have less bone density than others, just like some people are tall and some people are short. And, uh, there's normal variations. But the one thing that's pretty consistent in most women is that midlife, they tend to lose their estrogen. And if everyone died early, osteoporosis wouldn't be so much of an issue. But most people expect to live several decades, hopefully, healthily and independently, after menopause. And uh, if they're not on hormones or don't stay on hormones, half of women rapidly lose bone. And that rapid loss happens in the five to seven years after menopause. And then with aging, both men and women can lose bone. But men don't suffer that hit hormonally where they lose their hormones at midlife. That's why osteoporosis is more of a disease burden in women than men, although it still does affect men as well, usually just later in age. Now, can exercise delay the onset of uh, osteoporosis at all? Well, I like to say you can exercise and drink milk till the cows come home, and that's not a treatment for osteoporosis. So, of course, exercise, eating right, getting enough calcium in your diet, making sure your vitamin D levels are normal are all important hygienic lifestyle issues for all of this, all of us. However, it is not a treatment for the rapid loss of bone because of the metabolic changes that happen that cause osteoporosis. So calcium, vitamin D, and exercise are necessary but not necessarily sufficient. And so I describe it to patients, if you came in with pneumonia, we wouldn't just say stop smoking and go breathe some fresh air. I mean, we all should avoid smoking. We all need fresh air. We would give you oxygen, but we also give you treatment for the underlying disease of the pneumonia. And it's the same thing with osteoporosis. And that's what's frustrating to me as a treating physician who I see so many women who end up having to go into a nursing home or having to have major surgery after a hip fracture. And had they just gotten the, the treatment earlier, uh, we could have saved a lot of difficulty. And so many people think they take their little calcium and vitamin D pill and maybe, you know, walk on the treadmill and that quote is their treatment. It's not treatment. It's just hygienic lifestyle measures. I see. Well, what would the treatment involve if someone discovers they have osteoporosis, you know, maybe through a, a fracture or a fall or something like that? Uh, what can be done? Well, a lot of things can be done, thankfully. Uh, in fact, when I started in this field, all we had was estrogen and fluoride, and fluoride um, improves bone density but does not reduce fractures. So I would say that diagnosis is very important, and a bone density uh, is a gold standard. But if you break a bone, even with a normal bone density, you still may clinically have fragile bones and have osteoporosis. If you have osteoporosis on bone density and you've broken a bone, then you have severe osteoporosis. So in those cases, we want to go to the, like, the best top-of-the-line therapies, which are so-called anabolic or bone-building treatments. We do have anti-resorptive stabilizing medications that can help prevent osteoporosis or treat the milder cases where people haven't fractured. Medicines like hormones, estrogen, agonist, antagonist, like raloxifen, which reduces breast cancer risk. We have the bisphosphonate group like Fosamax and Actinel and, and Boniva, that class of medicines. Uh, in, injectable therapies like Prolia or Denuzumab, given twice a year, are, an, are anti-resorptive and very effective. 
the class of anabolic medicines, like the top-of-the-line kind of therapy um, that we like to give to people with severe osteoporosis or women with broken bones, or really young people that have osteoporosis and have very low bone densities that you want to really build up their bones to a higher level before you stabilize, we have um, two classes of anabolics. Uh, we have the parathyroid hormone analogs. We had uh, Forteo, a daily injectable medicine uh, that had to be refrigerated, available for quite a long time that's been on the market, but has a two-year maximum use of therapy. We have a newer one that's been available for a few years, which is a daily uh, injection with a very tiny needle uh, for two years called Timlos, uh, which is a wonderful advance and reduces dramatically spine fractures. And then we're expecting within weeks, a monthly shot for a year called Ramozumab or Avinity, which is a, a shot that you would come in to see the doctor every month for. Um, all of these anabolic agents, though, at the end of either two years of treatment or one year of treatment, then have to be what I call solidified with the anti-resorptive therapy to maintain all that bone you've built. I've seen a lot of patients who get uh, treatment with one class, and then they, their bone density improves to normal, and they feel great, and then they think they're done. So most of the time, that's not the case. So it is a chronic disease. It can be managed. And if you keep your bones strong, you're a lot more likely to live an independent life but, and maintain your height. But you're going to have to uh, have some lifestyle changes there, too, and, and possibly medication for the, for the uh, duration of your life. Well, it has to be reevaluated. Sometimes we do do drug holidays, but um, yes, everyone should have a healthy diet, get enough vitamin D, and get exercise that's appropriate. On um, my nonprofit website, speakingofwomenshealth.com, we have a list of exercises um, and, and precautions for people with osteoporosis because people who are recently diagnosed with osteoporosis, we don't want them becoming weekend warriors and lifting heavy weights and doing crunches and actually compressing their spine. So it has to be potentially done under a physician or physical therapist supervision, depending on how severe the disease is. And it's very important for women uh, and the people who love them to be armed with all the information and the resources that are out there. And there's a lot of great free resources, and there's so much misunderstanding. We have a, a free treatment guidebook on osteoporosis um, that has been reviewed by the Cleveland Clinic uh, osteoporosis experts. And uh, people can go on speakingofwomenshealth.com and download that free treatment guidebook, and it goes over all the different therapy options. And where can they find And this is on your website, right? Yes, uh, speakingofwomenshealth.com. We have hundreds of articles about bone health. Uh, so we have a column, you know, dedicated to, to women and bone health, talking about all the different options. We have a free calcium calculator that people can put in their age and sex and figure out how much calcium they need a day. We have a lot of information on exercise and fall prevention. I mean, it's obviously important to avoid trauma, slipping on loose cords and rugs, making sure your vision is good, that you have a nightlight if you get up at night. Um, but women can break bones without trauma. Um, in fact, that's why every adult should get their height measured every year when they see their physician. Because if a woman loses more than one and a half inches of height, uh, she could be losing height because her spine is compressing like an accordion. Uh, and a lot of women I see 
maybe have lost three, four, five inches, even more, and they don't even realize it. They just think their clothes are fitting differently. And literally, their spine is collapsing. So we really want to treat people long before this happens. So that's a really uh, good warning sign there. Any other warning signs women should watch out for? Well, it's really silent. It's painless until you have a fracture. So that's why we really encourage people to see their physician, get a risk assessment, know what their family history is, their medications. You know, women that have breast cancer or are on aromatase inhibitors or people who have to be on high doses of steroids, prednisone for various medical conditions, those people are at so much higher risk and definitely need special treatment uh, and evaluation. And um, some people might have gluten intolerance or celiac disease. And once you take the gluten out of their diet, their bone density improves. So there are some reversible causes, but by and large, for most people over age 50, it's age and lack of estrogen and potentially some other medical conditions and lifestyle factors. But the good news is there's terrific treatments. And how many women uh, do you think uh, worldwide have osteoporosis, and is it more prone in some countries uh, than others? Well, um, it's a worldwide problem, and it's, it's in every country, but particularly a, any place where people live past age 50, um, because it is, a, it is a disease of lack of hormones, uh, which goes along with aging for a lot of folks. And it's not normal to break bones with age and to shrink. Um, so it's not something that people should just accept as part of aging. And uh, once you have a fracture, you really need an intensive evaluation and particularly an assessment for the anabolic treatments. If you just are at risk and have low bone density but haven't broken a bone, then maybe you might be a candidate uh, for one of the preventive medicines that sometimes have other health benefits. And the therapy does have to be periodically reevaluated and and have follow-up bone densities done on the same machine. It's very important because that's the way we tell if people are losing bone or gaining bone. For young women, smoking and drinking, should that be reduced? Can that help prevent or slow down the onset? Well, we don't want anyone to smoke even one cigarette a month, uh, but certainly too much um, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. Even having more than three drinks of caffeine can cause some calcium loss. And making sure that you don't get underweight as a young woman uh, and have, you know, eating disorders and, and certain, you know, female athletes can cause the periods to stop, and that prevents a woman from maximizing her bones. Uh, some women during pregnancy and breastfeeding can be at risk for losing uh, bone density. Um, so it is important in young adulthood uh, and adolescence and childhood to have a healthy diet, get some vitamin D or sunshine and regular exercise. And if women lose their period for no reason, that should be investigated because that takes a lot of um, um, potential damage to the spine and the bones. Mm -hmm. And finally, uh, the the medications you mentioned, do any of them have serious side effects that someone would have to get used to or, or should expect? Well, all medications have potential risk as well as benefit. But for most women the risk of not treating osteoporosis are so much greater than the risk of medications. Um, There are some potential rare risk uh, with medications, um, and there's a lot of talk about atypical fractures and osteonecrosis of the jaw, but that can occur in the baseline population, 
and I think has really been exaggerated, and I think it's a shame that people don't get treatment because of that. Uh, some of the hormonal therapies and CERMs um, might increase the risk of blood clots, so we would avoid those in people who've already had blood clots or at, at higher risk. Um, patients who've had radiation or Paget's disease uh, cannot get the anabolic treatments like Forte or Kimlos, but they could get the new Ramosumab or Avinity. Although, if you've had a heart attack or stroke, we would tend to avoid Ramosumab Avinity um, for that one year after any kind of cardiac event. So that's why it's important to see a knowledgeable physician who can assess what your medical background is, your family history, what medicines you're on, and what the best therapy in what succession to optimize your skeleton. Well, very good. I, I guess the overall message is as, as women approach middle age, time to get checked, get that checked out and, and put it at the top of the list, just like the, the other health concerns that we hear so much about, heart disease and uh, cancer and, and all the others. Yes, it is very important. And thank you so much for uh, you know giving me time to get some of this information out. I would encourage all your listeners uh, male and female, to go on speakingofwomenshealth.com because there's some terrific free information uh, that can empower them to be strong and be healthy and be in charge. All right. We've been talking to Dr. Holly Thacker. She's a physician, and she's executive director of a website, speakingofwomenshealth.com, a website that informs and educates women about a lot of health concerns. That's speakingofwomenshealth.com. She's also director of the Center for Specialized Women's Health at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. And that's our podcast. Thanks so much for listening to Conversations with Ken. I'm Ken Robinson. Make first trade your first stop for free stock trading. Why pay commissions when you don't have to? Proudly serving customers since 1985, First Trade offers a full line of products and tools designed to help investors like you take control of your financial future. First Trade has a highly intuitive user interface, outstanding customer service, along with mobile applications. Whether you are a new investor or an active trader, make First Trade your first choice. Sign up at krobcollection.com. First Trade, member FINRA SIPC.